make a deal with Netflix and you don't have money that comes into you forever. You get paid and then money 20% more or 30% more, but you that's it. It didn't come natural to me. There's so many things that I think about now I wish I had known when I was younger. What I believe resonates with people who are particularly now is content that has some sort of meaning to it. It's more than just pure entertainment. And so suddenly MTV was the only thing it seemed in the whole world and all of Hollywood and everybody else was taking their cues from this startup. I did not know a single writer when I became a writer. I think if you're trying to become a writer from someplace other than Los Angeles and New York, I still think that's really difficult. Welcome to Entertainment Business Wisdom with your host, Kaya Alexander. Welcome, everybody. Welcome to Entertainment Business Wisdom Podcast. I'm your host, Kaya Alexander, and I'm here today with attorney Philip Rosen. Philip's in the house. Philip's back with us. I'm so stoked. Hi. Hey, welcome back, Philip. It's so cool to have you back in. And uh, for anybody who maybe doesn't know you or isn't familiar with your background, would you just tell us a little bit about yourself? I'd be happy to. So I studied law at Stanford and uh, worked at uh, Polygram and RCA in New York uh, in the music video business then came out to the West Coast, uh, joined New Line Cinema. I was their senior vice president of business and legal affairs, worked on movies like The Mask with Jim Carrey, Seven with Brad Pitt and Morgan Freeman, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street movies, Lord of the Rings movies, house party movies. Um, went from there to a large law firm called Baker Hostetler. I was their partner in charge of movies and TV, and then opened up my own firm, the Rosen Law Group, um, and we represent writers, producers, directors, actors, production companies, distribution companies. We do film finance. We do um, independent films, studio films, uh, uh, unscripted television, scripted television, um, and uh, music as well. Is there anything you don't do? <laughs> <laughs> I don't. <laughs> like, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's cool because the last time I had you on the show, we were talking about like the streaming bubble is about to burst, like take advantage of it now. And now here we are, you know, it's been probably a little over six months since the last time I talked to you and we're in a totally different place in the industry with um, the changes in streaming changes with Netflix. And now of course the changes with Warner discovery and how it's affecting HBO max and like, wow, this like crazy shakeup that's happening in the industry. And I'm so curious, you know, to heal your, to hear your perspective, especially on how it's affecting deals, what you're seeing, you know, where you think things are going? Well, that's an interesting question. Uh, you know, there's more content being produced than ever before in history. So it's a fantastic time to be in the business or to be entering the business. Um, uh, I've always felt that the uh, amount of content that was being produced was unsustainable on a long-term basis. And, uh, but who knows, you know, if or when that, bubble is going to pop. Um, a little bit of the bloom is off the rose, uh, given Netflix's issues. Um, but I haven't seen any diminishment in the uh, quantity of productions that are 
going on. And I don't think there will be for the near future. Right now, we're still in the middle of the streaming wars. Everybody's fighting for, um, um, you know, uh, subscribers. And so they've got to keep producing at these levels or more in order to compete. Um, so that's really interesting because Disney just surpassed Netflix in terms of how many subscribers they have. Um, and I have felt like looking at, you know, the dark horse of like Paramount Plus because they didn't have nearly as many subscribers as everybody else. Now they have the war chest money coming off of Top Gun and the over billion dollars at the global box office and the way that that's shaking things up. Do you see the push coming from those platforms that maybe have fewer subscribers to try to come up and compete with those who have more like the Netflixes and the Disney's? <coughs> well, <coughs> yes, of course. Um, all the, uh, the, the new streaming companies are, uh, are going to have to spend big in order to compete with uh, Netflix and Disney. Um, Discovery uh, Warner is still trying to find their footing and, and determine how they're going to um, deal with those two platforms. There has been talk about them combining Discovery and HBO Max, uh, but we'll see. There's yeah, new we'll see. It, how have you seen this, you know, shape and affect the deals of your above the line creatives? It sounds like if I'm hearing you right, you're, you're saying that it like really hasn't affected them, but like, are they getting less money? Is it more competitive? What are you seeing in that space? Well, um, you know, uh, the content that's being produced is across all budget levels. So, you know, you have the big uh, gray man, $200 million or something, and then you right. still have the smaller independent movies that are that are being made. So, you know, the um, compensation payable to the, uh, you know, above the line talent is, uh, you know, dependent on how much the uh, the budget can afford. And, uh, I, you know, I don't see any diminishment because people still want to see the big stars. Um, so I don't see any uh, um, decrease in that. I mean, the way the deals are changing is that, you know, with more and more movies being streamed as opposed to theatrically released, you know, talent are looking for streaming bonuses and some kind of compensation uh, for not having the project be released theatrically. Right. Because the back end is just like not there for streaming. That's so right. Is the, but there's so little transparency. Are you saying that there could be a bonus based on like how many views a piece of content gets? Well, that, that will come. That will come. That will come for sure. But right now we're talking about <clears throat> a streaming bonus would be if a project goes to Netflix, for example, where they don't pay a back end, that the talent would receive some kind of bonus. So what Netflix does, they don't pay any contingent compensation. What they do is they sort of pay extra. They um, pay it up front. A little more money up front, but they're kind of buying you out of what may be a back end if it was a theatrical release. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. I mean, I th this is like super hopeful and maybe not even what I was expecting to hear you say. So what about the, you know, the, the appetite for, you know, unscripted or smaller budget stuff, especially, I mean, are you seeing that increase now with the shifts uh, in the industry in the last month or two? Well, unscripted is, uh, you know, just a huge part of the business because they can get similar numbers to scripted content for a far lower price. Right. 
So uh, I think unscripted will, you know, continue. Um, is it bigger now than it was, you know, a year or two ago? Uh, seems to be. I, just anecdotally, it seems to be a, a bunch of new shows coming on. I guess everyone's trying to just create so much content to fill up all these pipelines. Right. And, uh, you know, a good way to do that is with uh, lower budget, unscripted content. So strategically, like if you're advising you know, above the line creatives, like writers, directors, producers right now, would you say like, it's okay for your portfolio to have everything? You could have your big, bigger budget and your lower budget series and features, you know, to build out your portfolio or would your strategic advice be like, Hey, be looking at, you know, building out more lower budget stuff right now. Well, it's hard to break into the big budget stuff. Cause those are mostly, mostly franchise movies. Like, how do you break into doing, uh, you know, an Avengers movie? Uh, you know, I, I, you know, that's a, a tough game. Um, so I think the most of the action for you know, up and coming creators will be in the uh, the smaller budget range. I would expect. What about shows? I mean, obviously, like Outlander was helmed by Ron Moore, but what about these sort of flagship shows? that come along that the streamers really hope are going to rope in the subscribers. I mean, top of mind right now, of course, is Amazon has spent over a billion dollars on Lord of the Rings and they're about to drop it. And also we're going to see the, uh, the game of Thrones house of the dragon, you know, coming out on HBO max. What do you think? It's this weekend. Yeah. Um, you know, spending $10 million on episode, uh, is a big, gamble but they need those big franchise you know shows to uh, get people you know to stay on their platforms so uh i don't know how long that can continue you know these right. kind of, the kind of monies that are being spent I, I just don't know just out of curiosity you know i was reading the trades like in this last week about house of the dragon and about how hbo developed four different possible spin-off shows before they settled on, we're going to pick up House of the Dragon as like the show. So what does that do to the other shows and like the creatives who are involved in those other projects? Do they just get a payday and it's like, and bye, we'll see you later? I mean, it's not going to end up on their IMDb because they're not going to get that credit, right? I guess all it is is bragging rights. Uh, if those shows weren't selected, it's like any show that you write on that doesn't get picked up or gets canceled. Um, I don't know if everybody knows what happens. Hey, can you describe it just for a second? Because I mean, best case scenario is you know you sell your show and it gets made and it gets released and then you you know well, <laughs> it's like me, winning the lottery like three times in a row, right? <laughs> yeah, let me uh, sort of explain uh, sort of what a showrunner's role is, how that credit is given, and uh, uh you know, how that whole system works. So basically, um, in film, film is a director's medium, right? Yes. The writer has much less power and control over the final product. Television is different. Television is a writer's medium where all the, what they call showrunners are the people, have you already covered this? Um, oh, I have, but it's going out on the podcast and there may be people who want to know. So okay. great. Right. Let's do it. Let's do the yeah. stuff. It's fantastic. So in television, um, you know, uh, the writers run the show, as I said. So the showrunner would be the head writer, the person who created the show, who's in charge of the writer's room and making sure that however many episodes, it used to be 
you know, uh, 26, and now it's usually eight or 10. Right. Uh, that they can meet their deadlines and that the scripts are up to snuff, especially if you're going to spend $10 million per, per hour, right? So um, the showrunner is the executive producer who, um, uh, and the creator of the show is the person or persons that receive the story by credit on the pilot. So, and by story, so not just a screenplay, but the story. So credits are awarded by the Writers Guild of America, and they determine who gets what credit. In television, the key credit, you want that created by credit. And to get that created by credit, you had to have written the story of the pilot. So all those big, you know, showrunners that are, are famous, Shonda Rhimes and everything, <clears throat> uh, they received, they wrote the story of the pilot. They became the showrunner of their shows. Um, and uh, uh, um, let's see. So uh, what was the original question? I'm getting a little bit off track here on, on okay. show. We're just talking. Yeah, you're just talking through how the showrunning process works, especially with the credits, you know, and yeah. how that plays out. Let's back up a little bit. How do you get your story on the air to become the created by, to become the showrunner, uh, to make all the big bucks? So you write a pilot script, and uh, if that gets picked up and that show is produced, then if you were the sole writer of the pilot script, then you get the created by credit. Now, if it's your first production, you're not going to be the showrunner. You're going to be teamed with a showrunner, someone who has experience running a show. Uh, in addition, you may write episodes for that season that's been picked up by the network. So um, you receive payment for that as well. But as the creator and the showrunner, you make, you know, uh, you know, the most of any other writer on the show. You could make uh, $65,000, $75,000 an episode, you know, good money. And you get paid for each script that you write as well. So that's interesting. So you're getting fees as the creator off of every episode, even if you don't write them? Correct. Yeah, I didn't know that. As the executive producer and, and showrunner of the show, you you make a, a executive producer fee for every episode, no matter if you wrote on it or not. And that's really nice if you're a network <laughs> where we actually still have over 20 episodes, you know, per per show. It seems like streaming, you know, is more the norm of that, like eight to 10 or the mini rooms now. Right. Well, writer's fees have gotten squeezed because of that. Because they still, they still want exclusivity. Sure. But being paid for 10 episodes instead of, you know, 20 plus. And that exclusivity in those contracts, how long do the contracts tend to lock the writers up if they pull them in for one season of a show? Well, that's the thing. They want options to uh, uh, continue because if, if show runs seven, eight seasons, they don't want to lose that person. So they'll usually lock you in for uh, two seasons. And then they have an option for additional seasons after that. I've heard that uh, writers cannot, while they're under contract in a show, develop their own shows. 
um, but they can like write on features or take features out. What do you know about that? Well, th- this is the negotiation of the exclusivity provision. And you try to carve out as much as possible in terms of uh, being able to develop other shows, write features, uh, even though you might not be able to write on a, a series. So who ends up doing that negotiation? Is it a combo of agent and attorney? Is it just attorney? Could it be either or? It's the uh, agent and attorney. And do they usually work together or is it like separate lanes? You know, everybody works differently. Uh, Sometimes the attorney takes the lead. Sometimes the agent takes the lead or you work very closely together on it. Um, But generally, you know, it's a collaborative process. Yeah, that's really The lawyer typically gets more in the weeds. The agent sort of is more of the big picture. Right. Yeah. I mean, as I've been teaching my students, you know, how to build their team, how to find their wolf pack, essentially, and who needs to be on their team. You know, we know it's it's like a combination. You could have all of the above, right? You could have an attorney, a manager, an agent. You could have just an attorney. What do you tend to like to see in terms of a well-built-out team supporting one of your above-the-line creatives? You know, I, I think that... Um... It doesn't matter if you have an agent or a manager. You, what you want is someone good who's getting you work. Managers are supposed to not get work, but they do anyway. So it really depends on the person. It's not like to say, oh, you should have an agent, not a manager, or a manager, not an agent. I think you want a good person who's going to you know, keep you employed. Yeah, I totally agree with that. It's such a also relationships-based business, you know, having that support and having someone who can really get you in the rooms in front of the buyers makes a big difference. For sure. So where are you like at this point in your career with what you're doing and who you're supporting, what you're actually like enjoying the most? I kind of enjoy, um, I'm enjoying, uh, uh, you know, uh, companies that are being started and helping guide them to grow their business. Um, I'm kind of enjoying that, like uh, uh, unscripted uh, in the unscripted arena, you know, some executive producers get together, want to form a company, how you get them to from having one show on the air to 10 shows on the air to eventually uh, having the company sold. So I kind of enjoy that process. Right now I'm enjoying uh, uh, we're doing some cutting edge uh, uh uh, digital humans, like uh, one of our uh, clients is uh, sort of on the cutting edge of uh, creating um, sort of uh, people that <laughs> that aren't real, digital people, uh, to be in commercials, concerts. Uh, you know about the ABBA show, right? The- oh, yeah. And like, that's really popular in Japan. I know that there's this really popular pop star who's the digital pop star. And, you know, everybody like really enjoys her. I can't remember her name off the top of my head, but I've had a friend go to Japan to see her in concert and she's digital. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. So ABBA right now, they built a theater outside of London that ABBA um, appears in, but they're not there. A digital ABBA with live musicians and digital ABBA uh, give concerts three times a day, uh, six or seven days a week, and they're completely sold out. <gasps> wow. That's, this is a whole new era of like what's possible in terms of, you, you know, stadium entertainment, huh? It's, it's, it's definitely going to change really quickly. So we're, uh, my clients are involved in that, and I'm kind of excited about uh, that because they're getting a lot of attention 
Um, it's really interesting. I know with the, um, the, the Japanese avatar that they crowdsource some of the songs that the fans can actually write the songs for her. And in some cases, like they get voted up and she gets to perform them and everything. Oh, that's crazy. Yeah. It's like a whole new, you know, world of involvement and we're seeing such change in like the landscape of, you know, yeah, of yesterday back when you actually had went to go somewhere physically and see an actual concert with people who, who were performing for you. Yeah. That's really interesting. I love so that. Like, um, uh, you could do, um, you know, like the Rolling Stones or Bob Dylan, who are sort of at the end of their careers, they can, uh, maybe they don't want to go out. It's too taxing for them to go out on tour. Right. They have a tour or they could have a residency in Vegas right. without even, you know, with a few weeks of motion capture work. Right. And, uh, you know, they could generate considerable income by, uh, having their avatars. That's rad. It's like hologram, right? And also dead, dead people as well. Yeah. Um, legacy. And then there's going to be like, you know, money in that for, for the, um, for the heirs, right. You know, for the rights holders. Like Prince could do a tour and the estates would benefit from that. My God, that's so freaking cool. Um, tagging on that, we, what do you know about the rise of NFTs and all, everything in the industry, especially? We know the studios have built out NFT divisions. What do you expect to see? You know, uh, we've done a little bit of work in NFTs. Obviously, there was a lot of excitement and then that kind of dropped off precipitously. But now it seems to be gaining foot foot foothold again. Um, I don't know where it's going. It seems like a very strange, I still can't wrap my head around uh, the concept. Um, but uh, it looks like it's here to stay. And in terms of what direction it's going to go in, I don't know. You know, um, people are getting into sort of fashion, NFTs, and uh, it certainly seems celebrity-driven and art-driven. Uh, I don't know where it's going. Do you remember back in the day when we were hearing about like trans media and it seemed like the future was going to be VR? What do you know about the evolution of like the VR space? Do you handle that at all? Uh, you know, we we do represent uh, a couple of VR companies. Um, you know, that's been largely, you know, popular for gaming. Uh, the digital humans, the digital avatars and VR will be an interesting combination where you could you know watch that dead pop star perform a concert live uh, and be in the front row with vr headset that's coming that's interesting what trends do you see with uh film and tv right now anything we haven't touched on uh i don't know it's going to be interesting to see what happens with uh with uh, Warner's and Discovery. So in case you haven't heard about it, there's a new CEO that uh, Discovery bought Warner's, which is a mystery to everyone in the industry, how a kind of a, a minnow can swallow a whale like that. But uh, yeah. and they've and got David Zaslav. David Zaslav is the head of Discovery, is now the head of this Warner Discovery. And he's made big, big, big changes. For example, uh, CNN had a street streaming platform, CNN Plus, that they were like three days. About, right about to launch, and they spent a billion dollars on it. He just came in, axed it. In fact, one of my clients was was creating a series for that sh show, fired just wow. just axed it. Wow. 
So, and they, you know, they got rid of Toby Emmerich, who was the head of it, um, and put in Mike DeLuca, uh, both colleagues from New Line, uh, friends of mine. And uh, uh, Mike went over from MGM to run Warner Brothers. Uh, so it's interesting to what's to see what kind of moves they're going to make there and how they're going to handle the discovery streaming platform and the you know Warner's platform, which is uh, HBO Max. Uh, you know, I don't know the answer to that, but Zaslav seems to have his own way of doing things. We'll see if he's successful. So far, I've just been scratching my head at his moves. Um, yeah, I have too. I mean, it seems like there's definitely a contentious element between like shareholders versus Hollywood. You know, like what's good for the shareholders is like freaking everybody out in Hollywood with his decision making, you know, where he's just cost cutting and slashing across the board, including the loss of Batgirl. And a lot of my friends and colleagues are, you know, really mourning and moaning over that decision. Yeah. And also, you know, they had Batgirl, which they spent a lot of money on. The movie was in the can, finished. Oh, and he just and said, we're not releasing it on HBO Max. We're not releasing it anywhere. We're just going to sit on it. It's like, what? I mean, it just seemed very strange. Even, okay, let's assume it's not as good as some of the other big movies. I don't know. But still, you put it on streaming. If it just if people aren't that interested, it's not a big deal. But uh, again, I just don't understand some of his moves. Yeah, I agree. So, uh, you know, in terms of other trends, uh, you know, I don't know. I think the streaming wars are going to continue, and uh, uh, it's going to be an interesting time for both the uh, content creators and for the viewers. Um, you know, in terms of what's happening theatrical versus streaming, you know, the windows were getting shorter and shorter and shorter, and, you know, they had uh, simultaneous uh, the pandemic obviously, uh, you know, helped speed that along. The simultaneous release theatrically and on streaming. And then all of a sudden Maverick hit. And Maverick was a huge theatrical success. And you still can't watch it on streaming, even though it's 90 days. So it's it's going to be, I think in the next few days, it'll be available for pay-per-view. Um, well, yes, because Tom Cruise has that as part of his contracts, right? He has a three-month theatrical in all his contracts, and he, you know, has maintained that. And I expect that we'll see that carried through Mission Impossible, for given, sure. Given his success, you know, with with Top Gun. Yeah, uh, for sure. Yeah, he was. Uh, in, you know, a lot of filmmakers uh, really want to keep the theatrical experience alive, and it's had a revival. Yes um with uh with maverick and um so you know i guess the uh, answer is not so fast when it talks about all, you know all the action moving to streaming it's like well hold on a second theatrical still has a lot of life in it now what kind of life is that that's probably big franchise movies like maverick and uh you know marvel type movies and disney big animated movies um yeah yeah Big stars. So, what happens to the independent dramas um, and smaller movies? Will they get a theatrical release? Uh, the jury's still out. I mean, look at Coda, for example, is a good example from last year. Won you know the Oscar for best picture and best actor. The perfect movie. Uh, no stars really. Uh, was it uh, 
Marley Matlin, I guess, um, you know, not big stars. Let's just put it that way. And, you know, moderate to lower budget. And here you had a successful theatrical release. Um, so I don't want to say that smaller movies will not be theatrically released, but, uh, you know, the jury's out. I think it's harder to capture eyeballs too. I feel like if it goes to streaming, you know, getting that above the fold real estate where they actually promote your movie and say, Hey, this is available. You know, I don't know if you're familiar with what happened with the promise with the Christian Bale movie. Do you know anything about that? It's so wild. So the promise was a hundred million dollar movie about the Armenian genocide starring Christian Bale. And uh, it went into the theaters for like one weekend and then the distributor went out of business and the movie was pulled and it went into bankruptcy court and the movie just like just disappeared overnight. And um, and it was like I talked to a couple of the producers, including Eric Israeli. And, you know, it was it was before the pandemic where we were talking about, hey, you know, we could take the rights back and re-release the movie, maybe streaming, maybe online, et cetera. And they didn't realize that Amazon had acquired the um, VOD rights in the midst of the bankruptcy and that the movie was already on Amazon. We found it. We're like, oh, it's already on Amazon and it's like available. No one knows that it's even there. Like it's this huge hundred million dollar Christian Bale movie. And it's so epic. And it's such an important topic, the Armenian genocide. And it just like disappeared. And if they, you know, if it, the marketing ends up being so important, because like if a movie starring Christian Bale, that's that epic can just disappear. It's I think it's just going to be that much more competitive to make sure people know that your movie exists, you know? one thing to get it made, which is awesome, then get it released, then get it distributed, get it, you know, streaming, but then you actually have to let people know that it's there. No question about it. I didn't know anything about that movie. Um, when was this last year? No, no, this was like right before the pandemic that I heard about it. So we're looking at 2019, uh, you know, like as we're coming around the corner to, uh, to the pandemic when we were talking about that, discussing it and, you know, debating what to do with it before we knew what happened to it. And the movie's good? Yeah, it's beautiful. I mean, it's beautiful. Yeah, you should definitely watch it if you haven't. I haven't seen it, no. Yeah, it's wild. I mean, the, it's it's interesting coming out of the pandemic. And let's talk about that for a second, because, you know, as we know, COVID has driven up the cost of production. That's here to stay with the safety regulations and stuff. And then we've had some inflation hit as well, where supply chains, you know, make supplies harder to get in terms of building sets and things like that. Um, what do you know about it? Well, yeah, we uh, we're scrambling from a contractual standpoint to keep up with all the COVID news in terms of requirements by insurance companies, uh, uh, general liability insurance, the completion bond companies, and uh, and uh, everybody was scrambling trying to figure out, um, you know, the protocols. You know, having the the COVID uh, uh, consultant on set and who would be approvable by the insurance companies, and then putting in language in all our contracts to um you know protect the production against outbreaks so um our contracts still have that language um you know i think they'll start to be dropped i i would expect the covid specific language uh uh in the upcoming you know months so uh yeah we'll put in the monkeypox rider now yeah exactly <laughs> 
I mean, that's interesting because the, the shift in the pandemic is, you know, contractually changing things. And it's, it sounds like it's just a still continually changing landscape. Well, yeah, it's, it, look, it's still going on. I just read today about how the, the Google office a couple blocks from here had this massive outbreak of, of COVID. And this is just yesterday's news. So uh, it, I, it's not quite over yet. Um, so, but it's become less of a negotiable point in our contracts, right? It's become less of a concern. Just in case some of my students uh, and also listeners don't know what a completion bond company does, maybe that would be a good thing to just talk about just for a second, because they're such an imperative part of uh, movie making, and maybe not everybody knows knows of them or knows that term. Okay. So um, completion bond uh, is basically an insurance. Um, so it, it, it uh, for not for big movies, you don't get completion bonds because the studios uh, kind of take the risk of a movie going over budget. But on smaller movies, um, a completion bond will guarantee that the film will be delivered on budget. So the bank that's loaning the money for the movie, uh, the film financiers, they all want a completion bond to be in place. The, the number one company that um, writes completion bonds is Film Finances, it's called. And they do, I don't know, 80, 90% of the business probably. Um, uh, if, if a budget is too small, they generally don't want to get involved because the fees aren't enough for them to do all the, uh, the vetting and due diligence they need to do. So you're probably looking at a few million dollar budget or more. And basically they take up, a fee out of the budget, uh, you know, 3% uh, usually. And uh, then they analyze the script. They analyze the budget. They have people on set. They really make sure that the bond will not be called upon because that's a big deal if the bond is called upon. In other words, if a movie goes over budget um, and generally they would exclude COVID from the bond. Um, so... Uh, you know, they'll make sure that there's uh, enough contingency in the budget. Usually it's 10%, but they might want more depending on certain circumstances. And um, then they'll want producers and the director to defer some of their fee to make sure the movie is on budget so they get paid out of the contingency if there is any. So that's what completion bonds do. Thank you. That's super helpful for anyone who might not have known. And I didn't know that these studios absorb the that risk i thought that they still use that so i mean that's interesting i always learn stuff from you i love it when you come in philip thank you that's awesome i i think we'll wrap our portion of the interview here it's so great to see you and uh, i i'm gonna have you back again soon uh i enjoyed it and uh, great to see everyone and uh we'll talk to you soon Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Entertainment Business Wisdom. We invite you to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Please like, review, and share it with your friends and colleagues. Hiya Alexander can be reached on Twitter for your questions or comments at This Is Kaya. Get Entertainment Business Career Training 
as well as a free special report, How to Pitch Anything in One Minute, at www.entertainmentbusinessleague.com. Thank you.